Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer here on another BA Prospects podcast. We're pleased to bring in Alex Spire of the Boston Globe today to break down the Red Sox system. Alex, obviously this was a very, very, very difficult year for the Red Sox. It began with the trade of Mookie Betts in February. Once the delayed season got going, it was very, very, very ugly. The Red Sox went 24 and 36, and their pitching staff was cover your eyes bad for the vast majority of the season. We did see Alex Verdugo, who was the top player acquired in the bet steal, take some steps forward and do some good things. There are some young position players to work with. But before we dive into the system, I want to ask you the big picture question. Given where this team is, given what they showed in this shortened season, how far away are they from really contending again and getting back to those 90-win perennial playoff contender levels we saw from them from 16 to 18? It's, it's a great question because when you think about the, the core of young, controllable talent, like it still has a little ways before it matures to the point where you'd consider them to be in a position for, uh, for a sustained run. That said, there's an opportunity created by virtue of this unique offseason where uh, they are a team that, ex- that expects to have some money available, right? Like they, they do not have the Mookie Betts or David Price contracts uh, to contend with, or at least half of David Price's contract to contend with. And so they're in a position where they can kind of spread the board a little bit in terms of uh, maybe uh, adding depth, adding quality depth at a number of positions this offseason in, uh, in order to put themselves in a better position in a year where they'll have a Eduardo Rodriguez back, where they'll have uh, Chris Sale back for at least a, a good chunk of the year. Um, so there's, so to me, uh, they're, they're entering into, um, into something that we might consider a bridge year where they have an opportunity to construct that bridge, right? They have, you have the opportunity to fortify the major league roster, uh, with guys who have relatively short-term control one or two years, maybe at a time, um, while continuing to, uh, try to upgrade the overall long-term young talent base that they started 
upgrading with the acquisition of Verdugo Downs and uh, with other guys in their system. The Red Sox right now have just over $127 million committed in 2021 payroll. Now, there's some arbitration raises that are coming with that. But nonetheless, I mean, that's a very workable salary number for them to, to add some talent. As you mentioned, there's probably going to be some really good players available at a discounted price, particularly starting pitchers and especially relievers. And they certainly need all the pitching help they can get. In terms of help that's coming up from the farm system, it's interesting. You mentioned they have the controllable young players. You see Xander Bogarts is under a long-term contract. You have Rafael Devers. You have Alex Verdugo now. Andrew Benatendi has taken some steps back, but they still have him for two more years. But where they really need help is on the pitching side, and most of their top prospects are position players. So how quickly do you think this pitching staff can be fortified enough to get back to a playoff contender? Because I do feel like the position players could theoretically, you could have that core, but the pitching staff, it feels like that might be a little bit of a longer development curve. It's possible. I, you know, pitching staffs are, pitching staffs are tricky, right? They don't work in quite the same linear fashion as, uh, at least unless, unless you're the Dodgers, I guess. Um, they don't quite work on the same schedule uh, as position player development. You know, they have someone like Brian Mata who showed, you know, just amazing stuff this year at the alternate site, like, you know, kind of like jaw-dropping stuff where it's easy to see a pitch mix that projects as uh, at least a mid-rotation guy, but he has to be able to throw strikes. Now, you know, it's, you, you kind of, you kind of think about, okay, what is a progression that's possible for a young pitcher like that? You know, sometimes it's linear, sometimes it's, sometimes it's, it plateaus, and sometimes it's kaleidoscopic where a guy like really figures out a couple of tweaks in his delivery and all of a sudden he's coming fast. So, you know, someone like Mata maybe has a chance to be a contributor in 2021. I think that uh, he's an interesting one. Tanner Houck shocked me, frankly, with how good he was over the course of those first three big league starts. And they were against, they were against good teams. They were against the Yankees, uh, against the Marlins, against the Braves, um, where, you know, despite the fact that I, I had thought that he was more of a two-pitch guy who was going to be, uh, who was going to be a leveraged, you know, carefully used late innings reliever. Um, he, these, these were three five inning starts in which he, he dominated, uh, which was interesting. We'll see the extent to which it's sustainable. He's working on developing a splitter this off season. So maybe he's able to help. Maybe Nick Pavetta, who they acquired in the middle of last year, you know, is able to uh, take the steps forward that the Phillies were always hoping for from him and never got. So they have, you know, they, they basically have pitching prospects, right? You have these guys who are, with between Mata, Hauk, Pavetta, uh, within a year of the big leagues. I think that there are other pitching prospects, guys like, you know, Groom is further away than a year. Thad Ward, probably further away than a year, even though he'll start next year in AA. Um, you know, they, they, they have, you don't know. I, I guess they would need some things to happen with some of those guys in order for that reinforcement to occur. But you're right. Like, there's, there's a spread of outcomes where you don't feel like they're necessarily on firm long-term footing. Uh, with their pitching staff, they're in better long-term putting with their pitching staff than they've been in a while, but they still don't know. I will say one reason to feel optimistic, Heim Bloom, when he was with the Rays, that organization was really, really good at developing pitchers. Now, a lot of times they had to slow track them, but they kept finding arms, whether it's early in the draft, late in the draft, the international market, and they were able to build one of the better pitching staffs in the American League and the deepest pitching staff in the American League. So, it's a good track record and you, you bank on him being able to do it again. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not a coincidence that he was hired uh, for in an organization that had struggled with its development of pitchers either. Uh, that's the Red Sox have recognized that as a kind of long-term priority, um, given that they have been relatively ineffective in terms of uh, in terms of signing, developing, producing pitchers. Although they have, uh, I, I think it is worth noting the Red Sox have a pretty terrible reputation on that front. You know, most people consider it, most people just say, you know. John Lester, Clay Buckle, it's no one since. Um, and that's not, and in the last couple of years, they've made some strides in terms of overcoming that, whether it's with a, a guy who is a later round pick like a Jalen Beeks, who ended up, you know, who ended up positioning himself to be a, a major league asset. Uh, someone like Darwinson Hernandez, who's come along in the last couple of years and looks like he has a chance to be an impact contributor. You know, Tanner Houck, they took some smart, you know, they took, they took a patient, in, in some ways, a patient developmental approach to try to keep getting him uh, to the point where he had a chance to be a starter. And, and you know, I, I think that they, they could have pulled the plug on him as a starter earlier than they did, and, and they, they stuck with it. So I think that you're seeing them make progressive steps forward as an organization capable of developing pitching, but they haven't gotten to that higher yield of impact that allows you to sustain success. Yeah, and, and we'll see if it's part of the process and uh, we'll see what they're able to do. But I, I want to dive into this top 10 and Tristan Casas, number one prospect in this system for the second straight year. Jeter Downs, who they acquired as part of the Mookie Betts trade, and Bobby Dahlback, who we saw come up and, and provide some immediate power once he made his major league debut. How close was this and what was the gap, you know, between Cassis and Downs and Dahlbeck? I mean, what kind of feedback were you getting on Tristan Cassis as the number one overall prospect? Um, I, I, it was, for me, I did wrestle a bit with, uh, with Cassis and Downs as the question of who is the number one overall prospect, largely based around position, right? Tristan Cassis is a first baseman. So the bar is set really, really high in order that you better be just an amazing hitter with serious juice uh, if you're going to be able to be a number one, if, if you're going to be a top prospect as a first baseman. Um, but I, I think that he is, you know, at least the signs that, that he's offered thus far in professional ball, uh, and particularly at the alt site this year, um, were pretty encouraging in that regard. And the idea that, you know, as a 21-year-old, he was, uh, or 20-year-old 20, 20 this year, I guess, age 20 season, um, he looked really, really comfortable really confident against guys who were, you know, who were 4A pitchers, who were AAA pitchers. Um, and, you know, just the power showed, the all-around, the all-around all-fields approach showed, the maturity showed, you know, this is a guy who is not afraid to be very young for his level. Uh, he, he doesn't, you know, he, he's someone who's not held back by his own insecurities, I think. Um, not in a bad way, like there are guys for whom that is, that masquerade, overconfidence, masquerades as uh, as that sort of um, absence of insecurity. I think that in his case, it's it's pretty genuine because he's been this really mature, smart hitter for a long period of time, smart enough to be adaptable. So there, there's just, there's a lot of known qualities that are very impressive, uh, including, you know, including great intangibles, um, great develop, great commitment to personal development um, that suggests that he, he has a chance to be special enough as a, as an offensive first baseman with solid defensive skills to belong at number one, even though the gap between, you know, the gap between production, expected production to be really good at first base and second base is enormous. Uh, I looked at this a few times. This, I, I believe that this year, the major league average in OPS at first base was like 792. And at second base, it was like 696. So 
if you think about like, you know, if Jeter Downs is an above average, is like, you know, uh, you know, somewhere, but if he gets, even if you kind of shoot low on what he has a chance to be, like 50 to 55 grades in terms of hit and power and defense, like if you combine those things at second base, then you have, you, you have a player who, you know, despite the fact that you wouldn't maybe in a vacuum look at him as having like those kinds of all-star components, like all of a sudden you take the aggregate of that and you maybe have an all-star. Um, the bar is lower for him to be an all-star than it is for a first baseman like Cassis. So uh, he's awfully interesting. I did wrestle with it because of position. Ultimately, I made the call based on the fact that there's kind of a bit more greater, there's, there's more consistent conviction in Cassis. And there's that sense of, even though he's a first baseman, a higher ceiling, you know, like that. Uh, I don't think that he's going to be Freddie Freeman, even though he gets some Freddie Freeman comps because of the all-fields approach and the intelligence as a hitter, but, you know, he has, he has a chance to be in a, you know, a, a top five first baseman for a long time. Yeah, one of the things that I keep going back to is when we make our calls throughout the year, we talk to scouts all across the country, all different levels, all different perspectives. I have yet to hear a bad thing about Tristan Cassis. And you know, we call on so many guys, and you'll hear even about some of the top guys, he does these things well, here's my one concern. When I call about Tristan Cassis, People like, yeah, no, this guy's going to hit all the things you cited. And Jeter Downs, especially being the guy who does the Dodger system for us, I saw a lot of him last year. He made some great, great strides throughout 2019. I think the trend up is really, really encouraging, and he's a great makeup guy. You bank on him being successful. But it still just stands out to me how when you talk to evaluators about Cassis, you don't hear a bad thing. You know, Downs, there's still some questions about, okay, the approach improvements he made, how much is that going to hold? defensively where do all the pieces fit I think it's very telling not only what you hear about a prospect but what you don't hear about a prospect and I have yet to hear anyone bang Cassis in any way yeah I mean the closest I've heard is some people thinking that there's a chance that he'll you know because of his size and he is a giant like you know I you like you like he he is the I I have gone back and forth as to whether he is a moose or a giraffe but this is a a large human being uh, at the plate, you know, like, it, especially, I don't know, the moose thing works pretty well, because sometimes he spreads out really wide, and like, it's, you know, anyway, um, he's, uh, there, there are some people who think that because of the size that he's going to inherently be vulnerable to swing and miss, uh, that is going to reduce him to being like an average everyday first baseman, but that's a pretty good floor for a guy who's never played a game in the major leagues. Or a game above a ball. That's a testament to how good they think he can be when the worst you hear is, oh, he's, you know, he's a solid everyday first baseman. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so with Tristan Cassis, as you mentioned, number one, Jeter Downs, the clear number two. How much was Bobby Dahlbeck the clear number three? Was there a lot of debate with him and Mata and Duran? Take us through this tier of players and how you ended up settling on the order you did. You've identified exactly the tier of players uh, that I was, uh, that I wrestled with a bit. Um, and it went back and forth. I mean, there were various times uh, where, you know, where during the alt side, especially. So, you know, Jaron Duran is someone who was initially very exciting uh, in, you know, who was surprising as a 2018 seventh round pick. Uh, in 2019, all of a sudden, he hit really well in 2018 in his, uh, in his pro debut in Lowell. Um, all of a sudden, you know, there's harder line drives than you would expect in 2019 in Salem. Sometimes he's just beating out, you know, four hoppers to second base or shortstop, like routine grounders, uh, and that inflates his batting average. But the guy was hitting nearly 400 uh, for the first couple of months of, of the year, but with zero power, right? Like, you know, he's, 
I guess zero is maybe a slight exaggeration, but you know, you're thinking that the upside is going to be 10 homers in the big leagues. Uh, maybe someone who's able to hit for high average, be a solid defensive center fielder and steal a, a bunch of bases, maybe. Um, there's, there's a decent amount of Jacoby Ellsbury in his game. Um, and then all of a sudden, he works with Doug Latta during the offseason. Uh, he makes some interesting adjustments with his hand position. Instead of being hands on the shoulder, uh, he's starting hands down by the hips in a fashion that you see with like Verdugo and with, uh, and with Cody Bellinger. And he's using that as a mechanism, as a timing mechanism to be able to load and actually like keep a nice, clean path to the ball on the inside part of the plate and be able to explode to it. Because he's a strong guy. He just never really hit the ball for power in the air. And all of a sudden, gets to the alt site, and he hits more home runs there uh, in the span of a couple of months than he did in all of 2019. And, you know, they aren't like cheapies. And, all, you know, some of them are, some of them are going. So um, there, there was a time, there were times when uh, looking at him in the addition of power that maybe would come with some compromise to the hit tool, uh, you think, okay, the upside here has a chance to be pretty good given the position as well, given that he's a middle of the field player. So yeah, I, I you know, I, I ended up with him at five, but I certainly thought a lot about him as three. And there were times when I was thinking, I was asking myself, should he be pushing ahead of downs at number two? Um, you know, nonetheless, I settled on five because I have no idea what the alt site means, right? Like, you know, this is, this is, this is complex baseball, right? Like this is, you know, we don't know what that brief glimpse of facing his teammates day after day after day, like guys who is going to have a pretty good read on how they're going to attack him and what their stuff looks like. Like, I don't know how that's going to translate over the course of a broader season. So that uncertainty relative to someone like Dahlbeck, who it showed up in the big leagues, right? Like the, you know, the expectation was always like, this guy has a chance to be a three true outcomes guy with massive power. That showed up in the big leagues. Uh, I don't, it showed up in a fashion that's probably not sustainable because he struck out 43% of the time. Um, but he's been able in the minors, uh, he was able in the minors to go from a 43% K rate in 2017 uh, to bring it down to something more manageable. So, um, so I think that uh, there's a chance that, you know, he, he showed it in the big leagues. That counts. Uh, so that's why it ended up being number three for him. Um, Mata, again, like I, it was anywhere between three and five because you see him on the right day and it looks like top of the rotation stuff. Um, I, I ended up, you know, I ended up dinging him um, because, uh, because he walks guys and you don't know whether or not that's going to disqualify him as a starting pitcher, but uh, the stuff itself is pretty electrifying. One of the things about Dahlbeck that has stood out to me, and you mentioned his ability to really take down his strikeout rate each level of the minor leagues. I got to watch him and talk to him and get to know him a little bit with Team USA. He was part of that Premier 12 team that went to Olympic qualifying. And what jumped out to me more than his light tower power to left field and easy power to right field, he immediately became a leader on that team. You realize very quickly, this kid is very, very smart. He knows what he's doing up there. And he very quickly took a leadership role on a team that had some veterans like Eric Kratz, like Clayton Richard. The makeup stood out to me. And to me, you know, we talk about that trend in the minds of cutting his strikeout rate. It just struck me as a guy that, okay, this is the kind of guy who's going to get better. He's smart. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to handle himself. And I think there's no question strikeouts are always going to be a part of his game. But it does feel like this is a guy, and even watching him in the box, 
he's smart enough to adjust and figure out how guys are pitching to him, what he can do, and, and maximize his power. I mean, is he ever going to hit better than 250? Probably not. But if he's 240 with 30 home runs in today's game, that's an everyday big leaguer. I, I, I tend to – right. He's, he is, his, the power is significant enough that it gives him some latitude on the hit tool uh, to be, you know, right, the three true outcomes guy. And you are also correct. Uh, he's cerebral. So he's able to think about the aspects of his game that are deficient and uh, think about how he can uh, correct them or compensate for them. Um, I'd also add that uh, despite the fact that there are always going to be big strikeout totals again, like this is a big human being, um, that his swing isn't like, isn't overly big, right? Like he has there, it's, it's relatively compact. I, it's not, he's not a bat speed guy. He's a strength guy. Um, but because he, he's recognized that, right? Like he's recognized that he just has to get contact and contact in the air in order to make a significant mark with it. And so by virtue of that, you know, there's, there is, uh, for someone of that size, there's not the usual length to the swing that you might associate with the high strikeout totals. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was that three to five group. Six to 10 group was kind of interesting. You have guys who have reached the majors like Tanner Hawk. You have guys who have barely played full season ball like Jay Groom. How did you sort this group out? And was this all kind of one mishmash or was there a clear tier here in the six to 10 group? Uh, I wouldn't, I, I would say it was largely mishmash where you can make a, a case to for all of them being very, very fluid, very movable within that group. Uh, you know, someone like Groom, uh, I, I would have been okay with him at 10. I would have been okay. You know, I, I could have, I, I would have understood an argument for keeping him off the list. He was good enough in the alt site. He was healthy uh, for the first time. We got to actually watch him pitch um, in the Paw Sox in their, uh, in their swan song in Pawtucket. Uh, as a AAA affiliate, we're kind enough to stream those games. So you could watch Jay Groom just pitching and like looking comfortable and easy on the mound where, uh, where his stuff plays against guys who are upper level minor leaguers who, you know, he's, his fastball plays against them. Um, so I'm still a little skeptical because he's never pitched a full healthy season in his professional life. Um, but, you know, there was, there's talent there. So, you know, so yeah, I, six was, six was where I had him slotted based on the idea of like, maybe, you know, I, I think that, I think that the, the ceiling is going down a little bit because the stuff isn't as dominant as it was pre Tommy John. Um, but it's still, you know, there's enough ease to the delivery that there's like a sense of possibility. Uh, and the stuff played well enough in the outside that, you know, you keep him in there and wait to see what happens. And then, you know, he's followed by another wild card in uh, Gilberto Jimenez, who, you know, this is a guy who hasn't competed above Lowell, uh, but has just that crazy athleticism that allows you to think he could be anything. You know, he could be anything. There's a, there, there's a big league defensive floor. Uh, there is big league speed. And then on top of that, you wait and find out what, the, what on earth the hit tool and the power tool is going to be like for a guy who's learning how to switch hit and pro ball, um, but who's, made, who's been able to keep up with whatever's been thrown at him in that pro ball context. Nick York was the surprise of the first round. The Red Sox took him 17th overall. And I tweeted this out on draft night when a lot of Red Sox fans were freaking out. Nick York, a lot of people felt like was arguably the best high school hitter on the West Coast in a very talented year. When I say hitter, I mean pure hitter. Yeah. 
And he had played well. It wasn't like this was someone who wasn't anywhere on the radar. He was just seen as more of like, you know, a second round pick, maybe a third round pick. And the Red Sox were higher than the rest of the industry. That said, I had another very, very accomplished scout text me after the fact and say, you know, this was my gut feel guy. I don't think this was a bad pick. So it wasn't something that the industry was necessarily panning them on. What was it about Nick York that, in your discussions with the Red Sox, gave them the confidence to pick him so high and for you to, again, put him right away in the top 10? They, so he was, he was limited from, he was, he was held out of the, jun, out of the uh, post-junior year showcase circuit, right? Like he was, he was recovering from shoulder surgery. And so uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't just, he wasn't in those showcase events where you can really cement your draft status. Um, he, in order for him to fly up kind of consensus on a consensus, uh, he would have had to play this spring. He didn't get the chance to. Uh, what he did show in those five high school games was really good. Uh, he, homered in, he homered in two of them and hit a ball off the top of the wall in another one of them uh, to straightaway center. Um, the Red Sox had a chance to work him out a lot uh, over, the course of, uh, over the course of before the shutdown happened because uh, their area guy had been all over him dating back to the area code games after his sophomore year. Um, he actually... Uh, was very familiar with the family's history. His mom uh, was a softball superstar. Um, and, uh, and so that was considered to be, you know, a plus like that. It was actually like when, when, uh, when the Red Sox Darius got heard who Nick York's mother was, he was like, oh, like, you know, the bloodlines, like, you know, idea went out, you know, just ding, ding, ding. Um, and on top of that, they got, they got to work with him a lot. They got to find out a lot about the makeup. Paul Taboni, the Red Sox amateur scouting director, uh, was spent the off season or spent spent the winter out in uh, out in uh, Northern California and uh, and so he got a chance to see York a lot. The Red Sox had a ton of looks at him in those five games. They got virtually like they, they got most of their cross checking staff on him uh, in order to be able to form a consensus that they think that this guy has a chance to be a pretty special hitter. Uh, you know, someone who uh, you know second base, third base, somewhere in there is. You know, they, they think that he has a chance to be, uh, you know, I, I mean, th- there's upside of like 60 grade, 70 grade hit tool with power that might, you know, that, that would play as above average in their eyes. So they thought that um, they were, they were, they thought that the industry would have gotten there and they didn't think they would have a chance because they didn't have a second round pick this year if they didn't take him in the first round. Yeah, you mentioned York's mom. Robin was a four-time All-American Fresno State, led the Bulldogs to three College World Series. So All-American, every year she was in college, three College World Series. She is considered one of the softball greats of the 90s. And there's no question, there's a lot of people who think he can hit, and we'll see how he uh, gets his pro career underway. Alex, before we wrap up, how many other guys were in the mix to be in the top 10? Was this the clear 10 guys, or were there some other guys on the fringes that had an argument? I think it was a clear nine for me. And then, uh, and then at 10, I ended up putting Thad Ward in there. Um, you know, he had, I didn't want to forget how good he'd been in, uh, in, 20, in 2019. And I think I had him at like six above groom uh, in 2019. I, I, you know, I assume that there's, you know, some element of uncertainty that's injected uh, by virtue of the fact that he didn't play at all, you know, and he's a pitcher uh, in, uh, in 2020. Um, but I wrestled with, the question of him versus some of the guys who they traded for. Uh, for instance, Connor Seabold is someone who is very highly regarded by other, especially in, you know, there, there's, 
uh, there's industry interest in uh, in Seabold, and, and there was a pretty decent amount of surprise, I think, that the Red Sox were able to get you know Seabold for relievers uh, in the middle of uh, rental relievers at that in the middle of the season. So certainly considered him. I had to figure out what to do with Noah Song, um, who we have no idea when or if he'll ever pitch again. Uh, but he, if he does, you saw him in the Premier 12, a uh, super talented pitcher who would, you know, who profiles as a guy who could move pretty quickly uh, if he remains the same pitcher who he was before entering his two-year military commitment. Um, and, you know, I, so I wrestled with those. Some of the other guys the Red Sox acquired via trade from the Padres, Jason Rosario and, and Hudson Potts, um, have some tools that make you wonder whether or not they merited consideration. There were some, there were, there were some evaluators who like the uniqueness of Connor Wong as a uh, catcher who has versatility. Um, you know, that Austin Barnes model of, uh, of catcher who can really impact a roster in a very interesting fashion, but Wong has some swing and miss issues that, uh, that capped his, uh, they capped the evaluation of him. So it so there was a discussion at 10, but really the other nine were pretty clear to me. Absolutely. Alex, any final thoughts on this system and the Red Sox as a whole and what 2021 holds? I mean, I, I think that what 2020 represented was a recommitment to the idea of developing that kind of like upper levels talent base in finding as many guys, <laughs> trading as many guys as they could in order to replenish it a bit. Um, and so it's, you know, that, that attention is going to, it's going to be awfully interesting to see what that attention yields in terms of actual talent and how long it takes for the Red Sox to get to that point of kind of their next core, because, you know, there's, uh, that is, that, that's the reason why they, they put themselves through a hell of a lot of pain this year. They chose it uh, because they think that there's going to be long-term payoff for doing so. It's, a, it's quite a bet to take. Um, you know, it's, it's quite a thing to give up one of the best three players in baseball. Uh, and uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out uh, in 2021 and beyond. Yes, it will. We will see how quickly they can start winning games again and at least dull the pain a little bit of the Mookie Betts trade. But I have a feeling it's, it's going to take a while. Alex, thank you again so much for joining us. We appreciate your insight as always. Once again, this has been another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Alex Spire, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.